Nancy Martin. I'm soon to be the medical director of the PES at UNM. And um, I have some experience with um, adults on the autism spectrum disorder. And so I wanted to, to speak with you all today about um, how, how to best approach these people in different scenarios that you might encounter. Um, the entirety of my fourth year of residency was spent working with these patients uh, through the Emory Autism Center. And I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but I, you know, I'm not an expert. I haven't done specialized trainings in this um, in terms of board certification. So um, if there are questions, I'm always happy to take those and take them to people who have more expertise to me. So with that. I'm going to have to clear the background. Sorry. I've <laughs> I've so this is my disclosure page. I, I don't have any disclosures. I'm not working with the industry at all. In terms of learning objectives, we're going to define autism spectrum disorder and how that uh, definition has changed recently with the DSM um, that we currently have, the DSM-5. We're going to discuss characteristics and needs of persons with and I will refer to it as ASD. Um, and then reviewing strategies for working with persons with ASD considering maintenance of the officer and community safety. And so um, why should we in law, law, and care, law enforcement care about this? Um, well, again, so I think maintaining your safety when you're out in the field and then community safety for both um, patients who, who may be on the spectrum, but other people as well is really important. Um, avoiding litigation, obviously, and then in general, making your job easier because um, we all know you have the most difficult job and uh, these sorts of patients um, have different needs. And so hopefully we'll be able to clarify some of that. So what is autism spectrum disorder? Well, um, it's a biologically based neurodevelopmental disorder that's characterized by impairments in two main areas. So there's the social interaction and communication piece, uh, and that's both verbal and nonverbal issues, and then repetitive fixated behaviors and restricted interests. So as you can imagine, that's a pretty broad definition. And so to, to be diagnosed with ASD, uh, it's a complex interview that often involves both psychiatrists and psychologists doing a number of tests and um, frankly gets missed quite often. So, um, but those are the two main areas that you're gonna see deficits in. Um, there are complex behavioral and neurologic along with genetic features to this spectrum disorder. And um, there can be executive functioning independent living deficits, certainly. So autism spectrum disorder, um, it, it's basically an umbrella term um, for these complex disorders. It used to be called a number of things. It could be called Asperger's, which was basically the referral of somebody who's functioning higher on the spectrum. Um, but then a number of other genetic um, illnesses that go along with ASD were kind of grouped into that. And so the DSM-5 now refers to everything as autism spectrum disorder, um, which I think is really nice because it would get confusing um, for some people. Um, so there is a doctor, uh, Stephen Shore, who's a professor um, in the country, and he, he's a higher functioning on the autism spectrum disorder. And he talks about something that I think is pretty, I like, I like to talk to the residents about it. There's no one person who looks like they have autism. And so oftentimes residents will come to me and say, they look funny, they look like they have autism. Nobody looks funny and has autism. Everybody who has autism looks like the rest of us, unless there's some genetic component um, to the, causing their ASD. And so this professor, Stephen um, Shore, says, when you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. So it's, you're not really going to be able to see anything out in the field that's going to clue you into it. It's going to be these two areas of impairment that are going to um, help lead you to that 
that are maybe think about that diagnosis. So, so persons with ASD can, can suffer from intellectual disability, but that's not always a component of the disorder. There can be difficulties in motor coordination and attention, and then some physical health issues, uh, for instance, seizures or GI upset. Um, like I was referring to earlier, there are a lot of genetic illnesses that go along with ASD or cause ASD. The most common one is something called Fragile X syndrome. It's the most common single known, um, single gene component uh, that causes ASD, but there's also a number of others. So deletion in the, the 15Q chromosome, tuberous sclerosis, and then some other rare genetic abnormalities. But this is a complex illness, so it's not always genetically, there, there's not always a genetic, and most often there's very rarely a time where you can identify a genetic abnormality. Um, genetic testing is expensive, and if insurance won't pay for it, or maybe we'll just pay to, to see if the patient has fragile X, oftentimes patients and their families don't know um, what's causing autism spectrum. Okay, so why is this important? Um, well, Autism Speaks, which is a huge advocacy group um, for autism spectrum, has put together this data um, in combination with the National Institute for Health, uh, looking at the prevalence and how it's changed over the years, even from as early as 2004, so it was about estimated one, in, one, one person in 166 to now in around 2014, it was one in 68. Um, and so, it, you know, you're looking at the um, darker blue shows you the prevalence and then um, the lighter blue showing you the total number of persons that are living in our country with autism spectrum. Um, and so it's the fastest growing developmental disability in the United States. And so we're going to see more and more of, of these people, especially as they age out of programs. There's a lot of funding. There's a lot of support for children who are on the spectrum. Um, and as they age out of those programs, we really don't have the infrastructure in our country to support adults on the spectrum. And so I think um, interactions with law enforcement professionals will, will become more common. So this kind of speaks a little bit more detail about the epidemiology. So the prevalence of one in 68 children, it's more common in boys. So it's about one in 42 boys and one in 189 girls. And um, there's a lot of suggestions around that. Like I was referring to earlier, Fragile X is one of the most common reasons for somebody to have um, autism when it comes to a genetic abnormality. And um, oftentimes, because of the way that illness is inherited, that affects males more often. So that skews this data a little bit, but that doesn't 100% you know, uh, account for all of the, the, the reasons why there's more boys than girls. Research is still trying to answer that. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about each of these areas of impairment and what you might see. Um, these are not something you're going to get this whole list and, you know, somebody on the spectrum might have all of these, they might have one of these. Um, so it's kind of, you know, it's going to, it's going to vary from patient to patient. Um, but like I said, there's, there's nonverbal or limited verbal skills. Most of the time, or it's around 50 to 55% of um, autism spectrum disorder patients that they um, are not verbal at all. So that's one of the first key, the key signs that we see as physicians if there's, delay, if there's a delay in speech. And there's this avoidance of eye contact, um, something called echolalia, where uh, phrases or words are repeated, or there's re repetition of body language, so um, things like hand flapping, spinning, other sorts of repetitive, non-purposeful movement. Um, a trouble relating to others in terms of social situations. Difficulty on how to read uh, facial expressions. So uh, for a person who has ASD, recognizing that somebody's sad or angry is not something that they're easily able to do. Um, whoops, I have that on there twice. Avoidance of eye contact. Um, and then aversion to physical touch. 
uh, as well. So that these um, these people sometimes um, have grossly uh, paradoxical or opposite reactions um, to maybe receiving a hug, whereas somebody who's not on the spectrum might very much enjoy that. Um, and then they often pr prefer uh, to play uh, alone and they don't want to play or interact with others. So this is the main things when it comes to social interactions and communications that you might see. We'll go into specifically how that's going to affect how you interact with um, persons who might be on the spectrum. Some of the behaviors that you might see. Um, so this, the display in tantrums or extreme distress for no apparent reason, or apparent reason to us. If you don't, if you're not on the spectrum, you might not, you know, understand why they're having a, a tantrum. This insistence on sameness, um, so wanting things to line up, wanting things to look symmetrical. Uh, that's what I mean when I say insistence on sameness. Uh, inappropriate responses to sounds, lights, or touch, both in the hypersensitivity, not liking those things, but also maybe being attracted to them and overly attracted to them. Again, I put avoidance of touch on there because I think it's pretty important for both. Um, social interactions and their behaviors. This sustained unusual repetitive play. Um, so instance, um, for instance, some of the kids that we see who are on the spectrum, um, spinning of things can be a, a very repetitive play for them. And so they'll spin a plate for two hours. Um, and, and that can be an indication, you know, that they, they might have ASD. Inappropriate laughing or giggling, inappropriate attachment to specific objects. Uh, fascination with water, lights, and reflections, and that'll that'll come up when we talk about the types of calls you might receive with somebody who's on the spectrum. And then again, this echolalia, this repeating of words and phrases over and over and over, almost like they love the way that a certain sound um, you know, creates when they when they speak it. And then I'm, I already alluded to this: the spinning objects or their themselves hand flapping and rocking. Okay, so those are the most commonly observed behaviors in those two symptom domains. Um, there was a, a film that was done by two Ringling College students, uh, and it was featured in the New York Times, and hopefully we're going to get this to work. Um, but it won a 2014 Adobe Design Achievement Award, and it basically combines um, in an animation form how a nonverbal child with autism and sensory sensitivities might experience the world. And I think it's, it's, it's short, um, but I think it's pretty um, clearly indicative. played at school. Look what I got you. I know how much you like animals. Do you see this? This is a cat. How does a cat sound? Meow, meow. And look at this card, lovey. This is a dog. Where does a dog go? Can you try to match these cards for me, please? No, what dogs? Hello? This is her. Yes. Um, I'm really sorry. What? What do you mean she can't return? Where else are we supposed to go? I don't know. It's too loud. Stay with me. Let's look at this new set of cards. Too loud. 
just be quiet. Oh, I don't know. No, no, no. It's okay. Mommy, this is okay. Look what I got. All right. I hope this doesn't. Okay. So I can we can send that link out for anybody who wants. It's it's the the title of the film is called Listen. It's available on YouTube. Anyway, I think it's a really well done short version of what it is to experience this overwhelming sensory stimulation for a person who's on the spectrum. That even the smallest um, smallest sound that you and I, um, you know, would experience and and not think twice uh, about. of behaviors that we've talked about. And so one of them, uh, oftentimes that I've heard from patients is the sound of the air conditioner or the sound of a phone ringing like you heard in the video. Um, just these small, or the sound of a train going by outside can be so overwhelming that they cannot continue with their thought process. So I think it's really important to kind of show what it's like for them. So I, I referred to this earlier um, and, and some of these things you might see as well in the field, but uh, I thought would be good to spend some time on. Um, so this idea is hypersensitivity or hyposensitivity and it's not well, it's not clearly one or the other all the time. So in terms of senses, um, a lot of patients who are on the spectrum dislike wearing certain articles or types of clothing, specifically wool or anything that's really scratchy. The, the dislike of being touched, this overwhelming sense of you know, sight, sound, smells, or tastes, um, difficulties with sense of movement so that um, they're more prone to falls, falling down the stairs, tripping on things, and then um, difficulty with fine motor or mo motor planning um, activities. So I bring that up because some of these people, you could imagine how it, it might look like they're impaired, um, might look like they're drunk, um, whereas, you know, it's really that they have some difficulty with their, their motor movement. We talk a lot about the deficits for people who are on the spectrum. I think it's really important to talk about the tremendous strengths that these patients have. Um, some of the, the most brilliant people in history have been thought to be on the spectrum. Um, and so one of them is the strength of visual skills and um, quite frankly is a very area, very interesting area of brain of, 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 you know, brain research in my mind. Um, and we'll talk about a couple of specific examples, but you know, almost the ability to have a, a photographic memory, um, memory of details, uh, the ability to focus, the special interests often lead to um, you know, them becoming experts in certain areas and not intending, not, not having any education in a specific area or field, um, but, but becoming very, very um, proficient in them. This above average intelligence. So again, I want to really want um, to make the point that patients who are on the spectrum, it's sometimes they have seizures, sometimes they have problems with their GI system, and sometimes they have, um, you know, uh, intellectual disability, but most of the time they don't. Um, these people are follow. They're they're rule followers. They want to follow um, instructions that are told to them. And um, people on the spectrum have a hard time lying too. So it comes out they're very honest people and um, problem solving ability as well. 
So I bring up a couple of examples. Um, this man is called the human camera. His name is Stephen Wiltshire. He's a very interesting guy. That's his sister. He lives with his sister who's behind him. And he's capable of taking a helicopter trip above a city and then reproducing the entire um, skyline from memory. Um, and so he's done this with almost every city. This is New York. Um, he's done one um, Mexico City. He's, he was able to reproduce. National Geographic just did a piece on him, and um, they have a video as well. It's fascinating, and he's um, he's made a living out of this. So I mean, you can imagine um, you can imagine that people would pay a lot of, of of money for this sort of artwork, and that this is how he supports himself. And then I'm sure many of you are familiar with Temple Grandin. Um, she's a woman who's on the spectrum who, um, if you know anything about farming, she invented um, the, the cattle shoots that basically help farmers who, um, you know, to produce milk and produce uh, beef, um, help them get cattle going through a certain area. I, I'm not that, I don't know a lot about farming, but this is her original drawings. And um, she used her knowledge about how um, she prefers how she prefers um, to be in tight spaces as somebody who's living on the spectrum. Um, she likes to sleep in tight spaces and so she tried to put, she was thinking about how maybe the animal would feel most calm. And from my understanding of, of farming and, and cattle farming, that the, when they're trying to you know, put an animal through a certain area, unless there's that tight space, there's a lot of opportunity for the animal to become anxious and try and move backwards. And so she, she was able to really revolutionize this area um, and and um, did so very successfully. So she goes about the country talking about her experience with being on the spectrum. She's written a number of really excellent books, um, if anybody's interested. So I, I really wanna highlight the fact that there's a lot of positives about um, being on the spectrum. Now, when it comes to comorbid issues with mental health, there's a number of them. Um, so of course, like any other person, um, people who are on the spectrum can experience depression, anxiety, obsessional thought and perseverations due to the nature of um, ASD can occur more often. Anger management for not feeling understood or being able to, to, you know, to deal with certain environments can occur. Emotional coping skills can become an issue, stress management and then loneliness. Um, so all those things happen. It's not uncommon uh, for us to see patients who are on the spectrum who also have a primary psychotic disorder like schizophrenia. There tends to be a lot of overlap um, in them and um, so psychotic thinking can sometimes be accompanied with these patients as well. Okay, so when it comes to what you all are seeing, what, what's most typically what, what you're going to interact with or see or hear? So like I referred to earlier, persons with spectrum who are on the spectrum, they often appear they look, you know, perfectly typical. They look perfectly normal. There is no look unless they have a genetic abnormality that's causing them to have a dysmorphic face or, you know, some facial features that look different. There's, there's no way that they're going to look. Um, they may not respond to a typical command that you might give them. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And they actually may attempt to move or run away when approached because of that aversion to being touched. They may cover their ears or look away from you. They have difficulty with eye contact or feeling you know, over, overwhelmed with, with sensory stimuli. They might have the motor skill problems that will affect their gait and make, make them look intoxicated perhaps. And then they may display unusual or repetitive physical movements with the rocking or the hand flapping. They might see this as well. So what are the calls that you're typically going to get? Most common ones um, for assistance are going to come in terms of missing persons. So 49% of children on the spectrum elope at some time. So they, they wander. Um, they might see something that's really interesting to them and they leave not knowing some of the consequences that might come with. I mean, children who aren't on the spectrum do this as well. 
one third of those uh, patients aren't able to communicate their name, address, and phone, which is pretty terrifying. And then 91% of deaths related to wandering with persons on the spectrum is caused by drowning. And that's more related to this um, uh, patients on the spectrum really go towards water, towards lights in some, in some ways. And so they'll go towards a water source, not knowing the danger of it and end up drowning. Um, oftentimes there's odd behavior on another's property. So again, knowing that social uh, boundary of this is not my property, I shouldn't sit on this, doesn't really apply to, you know, to a, somebody who's on the spectrum. So somebody may, you know, somebody on the spectrum might be trying to access, gain access to a home or sitting outside on a swing. Um, so you might get calls about that. Splashing in water fountains, like I said, the swings in the sides more about that sensory stimulation for them. and. While that might be normal for us to see children in a playground uh, swinging or sliding, it could be perhaps distressing to parents of children um, to see a, you know, an adult person who has autism spectrum doing these behaviors, and so you might get calls about that. Um, oftentimes, there's that need for order, and so there are typically calls about somebody who's on the spectrum making order of, you know, in a grocery store, if there's a display where things are backwards or not in the way that they want them, you can imagine that that might turn into this person's um, trying to steal something. You might get called about a shoplifting complaint. And then again, the missing persons. Um, international border inspections, airport, any, any sort of building or event security checkpoint, those are areas where persons who are on the spectrum might have difficulties. Um, and you can imagine too, the presence of canine partners at the security checkpoints would be distressing as well. So these are the typical calls that you're gonna get. So we'll talk about um, ways that you can maybe alter your response. Uh, if you suspect or know somebody to be on the spectrum. So um, like most things in medicine, we use a, an acronym for it. Um, and so this one's autism. So we'll just start with a, um, with the approach. You wanna approach in a quiet, non-threatening manner. You wanna avoid quick motions and gestures that might be perceived as threatening to these people. You have to understand that they you know, very much want to avoid physical contact. So um, I'm sure this is one that you all don't do very often, but I'm not touching the person on the head or the shoulders. That would be really important for them. That's frowned upon. Yeah. And then talking, um, talking, uh, you want to keep a moderated, calm voice, keep your language very short, simple, and concrete. Know that you might have to repeat yourself and allow some response time. Um, the other thing in this is that persons on the spectrum really struggle with metaphors and slang. So things like um, saying, you know, do you think that's cool or what have you got up your sleeve? Things that you and I might say to each other and understand, you know, people who speak English as a primary language might understand. This is really difficult for persons on the spectrum to understand and make sense of. And they take things very literally. Um, for instance, I had a patient um, my fourth year who didn't get the concept. He was on the spectrum and very intelligent, but could not understand the differences between up, above, below. Um, he, he didn't get that concept. And so you would have to really be specific with your language and speaking with him. So if you all were to say like up against the wall, you might imagine how that would be pretty confusing for somebody who takes that literally. Okay. So you want to try and avoid that slang in general. And so to give you some examples of this, we've got um, a couple of Australian slings. Who, who, who's got a very good Australian accent? I think Matt, I think Matt. Matt, Matt, Matt can you, can you... I'm just gonna just completely, you know. It's okay. 
Try it. Did you put the tags in the boat? Nice. That's more <laughs> English. Did you put the tags in the boat? So, <laughs> oh, wow. No, keep going. Yeah. No, <laughs> let me just make any other countries or, or races or something. Just do whatever accent you can. <laughs> That's pretty good. So what do you imagine that means, Matt? Um, did you? I have no clue what a tag would be. Like the talk. Tog. Tog. Togs. Oh. Are you the togs in the boat? Yeah. Did you put? The boots in the, in the boots. Yeah. I would your think feet. just your 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 tongues of your shoes, maybe. Okay. Going back in the boot. Okay. Good. Huh. How about this one? That's it. Well, it's easy. <laughs> you want to read that one? Yeah, these are snags for tea. Wow. It's getting better. Get it. better. Okay. What do you think that one means? That means like, do you want yabbies or snags for tea? <laughs> <laughs> pretty self-explanatory. Okay. And this is the last one. Whose turn is it to shop for ice cream? That's perfect. Yeah. They got wow. better they, as you progressed. <laughs> what, what, so what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I think she's being really nice. Got a tour of England. <laughs> I appreciate your participation. <laughs> what do you think that last one means? Who's gonna order ice cream? Okay, so it's interesting to me that rather that you provided an answer before you actually really even knew, rather than saying I have no idea. Right? You wanted to give an answer. And so this really speaks more towards when you're interviewing somebody on the spectrum. Well, we're not going to go into that today. But how metaphor, this is how some of these metaphors that we don't, we don't think about, um, this is how they sound to persons on the spectrum. So that first one is, did you put the bathing suit in the trunk? That's what the togs and the boot are. Huh. Did you put the bathing suit in, in the, the trunk? trunk? Yabbies or snags for tea. have a whole tea. phrase for mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yabbies, <laughs> Yabbies and snags is um, shrimp or sausage for dinner. Do you know which one is which? Uh, I think shrimp is yabbies. Yabbies or snags for tea. Well, you got it. <laughs> and then this last one, whose turn is it to shout for ice cream? Is <laughs> Whose turn is it to buy the ice cream? Oh, you got that one. Uh, one of the two is good. good. I know how to wear ice cream in Australia. Australia. Yeah. It's, it's English. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was in English. OK, so getting back to our acronym. So the S stands for seek. So you want to look at you know all indicators to evaluate the, the situa situation as it's unfolding. I know you all do that anyway. Um, but be willing to adjust your actions accordingly. So for me, I had a patient come in um, to our emergency room when I was working in downtown Atlanta. And I knew he was on the spectrum. He was brought in by his father. Um, and we have a very you know, set way about how we interview somebody and typically involves a nurse going to do the triage and then m m myself and you know, maybe some other uh, health worker coming with me to, to interview them. And this person was so agitated, one, because he was in a small, he was in this tiny little room, which might not have been distressing to anybody else. It was very distressing to him. And he was rocking and his hand, he was doing a lot of hand flapping, a lot of behavioral um, issues. He could not sit down to talk to me. And his dad told me he really likes chips. And so I went and got a bag of chips for him and he was able to sit down and talk with me a little. I mean, enough for me to, to do an evaluation with him. And so you have to be willing to adjust your actions. I don't buy chips for every patient I see. You know, it's just not something that is part of my protocol, but um, you have to be willing to adapt you know, your actions accordingly with these sorts of patients. And then visually evaluate for injuries with persons on the spectrum because oftentimes they're not able to communicate them um, or they're not able to ask for help in this way. So your role is very important as a first responder. And then finally, maintain. So keep a safe distance until appropriate behaviors lessen. So if you, um, you know, come to a scene and there's um, somebody who's having, um, you know, behavioral disturbance, don't try to don't don't try to stop it. If they, oftentimes patients who are on the spectrum need to have um, 
some sort of outburst, whether it's verbal or physical, um, and you know, keep that safe distance until the behaviors lessen. And then remain alert that impulsive behaviors or outbursts can occur at any time as well. So this kind of summarizes all of that. Um, if you're approaching in a vehicle, avoiding using lights and sirens. I know this has been mentioned with other patients um, in different, you know, different areas, specifically with persons living with um, traumatic brain injury. But this is the same sort of thing as that sensory over overstimulation. <clears throat> okay. So there's these cards um, that a lot of states will provide. Um, and it's a nice way, given that so many persons on the spectrum aren't verbal, and this, you know, should you encounter them in a wandering situation, um, if you know if you if you're in contact with families or persons on the spectrum, I would encourage you to to encourage them to get some sort of ID. So whether that's a personal ID card, a medical ID bracelet, even safety tattoos. But these cards are issued. I know it's a little extreme, but what is a safety tattoo? It basically saying I have autism spectrum. Really? Yes. This is a real thing. Yes. And I obviously it's people who are able to consent to sort of that sort of thing. But this card does just the same thing. It's um, a lot of knuckles. It's, there's it's like, what are you like? Come up on this one. And so every state has different ones. I know that um, in Massachusetts they issue a instead of a driver's license, they'll do an autism um, hmm. license as well that has the picture and has an address and has a phone number, which is nice that they. Typically, a physician has to fill out a form saying that the person has autism spectrum disorder. But these are available online, and there's a reverse side that basically has something that you can fill in a name and an address as well. Do you, sorry to interrupt, but so are you guys still passing these out? Because you were, right? Yeah, we still make these a lot for people with autism. Oh, do you? Mm -hmm. That's great. And and so, like, if, if you um, identify, sorry, this is Dan Duhigg. If you identify that somebody has autism spectrum disorder, you just kind of you you ask them if they want it, you give it to them, and you teach them how to present it to law enforcement. Yeah. Or the first responders. Okay. We give them just a little kind of like a tip sheet on how to present it. Like we don't want people, especially if someone has a flat affect or odd behaviors, just be reaching in their pocket the moment they see a cop. Right. So you know, so what do you teach them? What do you prompt them? Just that to, to ask officers, can I show you an, an ID or can I show you something? Can you show you my card? Okay. And we say to keep it like in your wallet or a normal place where you keep an ID, ID or uh -huh. wear around your neck if you want to. If someone's really bad. But this is also, you have to have someone that's lived with autism that's willing right. to share that to somebody's close. That's what I was kind of surprised about the tattoos. Because a lot of times people, what I've noticed is, well, maybe it's not autism. This is it's really popular with autism, especially with children. But other major mental illnesses, it's like people have the stigma. I don't want to be card carrying right. member of, of having an illness. Mm -hmm. I think this one's mostly important, and I can imagine it happening more often in um, patients who are not verbal for their for their family members to have some something that can identify them if, if, if their caregiver wasn't there with them to help guide the persons interacting with them. What questions just have come up? Um. I guess I should probably do those if I was going to answer questions. Um, Javier had a question. He says, how young can you diagnose? How young can you diagnose someone with ASD? Yeah, that's a really great question, and that's a changing response. So right now there's a lot of really interesting 
uh, work going into in, in infant work, um, looking at eye tracking and uh, trying to see if there's an association with persons who are later later go on to to be diagnosed with autism spectrum and um, difficulties with eye tracking. So I know at Emory University they're doing they're they're diagnosing with this study as early as six months. Um, you know, for most people, it's you're going to start seeing deficits in uh, language communication or physical abnormalities as early as two. Um, but like I, like we were talking about last week, um, there are a lot of people who are going undiagnosed um, for, for you know until adulthood, and those are those are obviously people who are um, higher higher functioning on the spectrum. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a wide range, but there's really interesting research going on right now about um, infants. I don't know if there's any questions. Do you, do you think that the... Can you answer Lawrence Saavedra with APD. Sorry. No. Do you think that, like, when you were talking about your statistics and you're saying that, it, that, that the amount of people with it is going up, mm -hmm. do you think that's because we can identify it at six months? Or, it's a great question. Or is it, it both? It's both. It does not. So our increased recognition and diagnosis and then the expansion, I think, too, of what is autism in terms of a diagnosis um, does not account for the, the, the increase in prevalence. So there is something else going on. There's no evidence to support that vaccines cause autism. That's good to say. Yeah. Good luck. There is zero evidence. In fact, the evidence that came out um, that supported that claim has since been, you know, uh, it has come forth that that was all, that data was all made up and that person's lost their license. So. But we don't know. I mean, we, we just don't know. We get that a lot. I have a question, Matt Timothy, when we, because I'm sure this comes up in medicine, but if we have to go hands-on for whatever reason, like um, a safety check, a pat down, or to arrest somebody, so it involves a physical contact, do you have any tips on that? Mm, like, should we question. explain what we're doing, or should we... Sometimes in law enforcement training, it's more of a surprise tactic if someone's acting odd. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, that's a really great question. Please pipe in anybody else who's had. I, most of the time, I'm seeing the, the person after they've been brought to the hospital. Um, but in my experience, I think introdu in, introducing yourself and saying what you're going to do is, is the best thing with patients on the spectrum. Now, there are times with um, behavioral outbursts, so it's not just, it's not going to matter. You're going to just have to. You know, you know, right. do what you need to do to make sure the person's safe, to make sure the officer's safe. Um, but I would imagine clearly and very simply communicating what you have to do.